Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders, past and present, of the Kulin Nations, and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, Grace, and good morning, listeners. Welcome to Thursday Breakfast. It's 7 a.m. on 855 a.m. 3CR. Good morning, Shahrazad. How are you? Yeah, I'm pretty good. Pretty good. So we've got a bit, bit of a show today. Mm-hmm. So first up, we're going to hear from Cheryl, who's from the Indigenous Social Justice Association, and they're talking about the Palm Sunday rally and their contingent the Palm Sunday rally that's happening this Sunday and they're contingent on that. Um, and then Megan Williams from um, Friends, of, Friends of the Earth's River Country campaign will be coming in to talk a bit about what's happening with the Murray. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've got Shakira Hussain um, who will be talking a bit about um, the far right. So she's been following the far right and actually going to... Um, rallies and that sort of stuff uh, for the past few years. So she'll be talking a bit about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then last up, we have Camille Nordka, who um, traces the origins of contemporary ideas of genital norm- normality. So it's a fully packed show. It is. In December 2017, Tanya Day, proud Yorta Yorta woman and much-loved member of the Aboriginal community, was travelling by train to Melbourne. When V-Line staff found her asleep, they called Castlemaine Police and she was removed from the train and charged with public drunkenness. Tanya died 17 days later as a result of head injuries sustained while in custody. This would never have happened had the recommendations of the 2001 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody been implemented. Tanya Day's family is calling for the crime of public drunkenness to be abolished and for the implementation of genuine community health alternatives to incarceration. Please add your support by signing the petition at 3CR Reception, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, or online by entering Tanya Day Petition into your browser. My name is Ian Ham, and I'm the chair of the Healing Foundation's Stolen Generations Reference Group. At three weeks of age, I was separated from my birth family. And even though they lived just 50 kilometres away, I never knew they existed. I never met my mum, and it pains me to this day. There are thousands of Aboriginal people just like me, and our stories have never been heard. These stories form the basis of Australia's first Stolen Generations resource kit for schools. To download the kit, go to healingfoundation.org.au. A 3CR supporter. 
We Need to Pay the Rent is a fundraiser for warriors of the Aboriginal resistance featuring the Pretty Littles, Worst Nurse, Ute Root, No Sister, Face Face and a heap more. Come join us on Kulin Nation land to give back. It's well overdue. We need to pay the rent. Saturday, May the 18th at the Tote from 4pm. Tickets $20. Available from the Tote website, thetotehotel.com. Free or discounted tickets for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Contact organisers online to arrange. A 3CR supporter. was uh, Jat Mahibathi by um, Yemen Blues. So there's been some stuff happening in Sudan um, mm-hmm. and I've actually received some, um, so it was, it was all over my social media and like, my family members were sending me all these videos of this woman chanting in the streets. So I'll just play a little excerpt from it. <laughs> Um, this woman has been identified as a 22-year-old student and there's been, um, it's been all over social media and there's been a lot of memes about her as well. <laughs> um, but it sort of shows, I suppose, the sort of importance of women in uprisings. Mm-hmm. So um, as we know, there's been um, sort of nationwide protests, you know, calling for the <coughs> president of Sudan, Omar al-Bashir, to step down. So he's been in power for for 30 years now. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so people have been referencing um, Nubian queens. You know, it's a reference to, like, you know, the queens of, like, in the, the region. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, and in 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 that um, video that I just, in that excerpt that I shared, she's, chant, she's chanting revolution, um, you know, and there's been, like, stuff on social media about, like, you know, in, in Somalia there was, like, um, you know, women-led resistance movements there in the in the uh, decolonial movement mm-hmm. um, and that sort of stuff. But yeah, I, I think it's something to to follow as well as the rest of the uprisings. As well, there's also continuing protests in Algeria. So the, there's been protests um, like all throughout this year in Algeria calling for the president to step down because he was going to go for a fifth term. And the president did step down. So now mm-hmm. people have taken back to the streets to protest for change, pretty much. Yeah, and there's stuff going on in Libya as well at the moment, no? Yeah, yeah, there's stuff going on in Libya. Actually, there's stuff going on all over North Africa. Yeah, um, I guess there's <laughs> stuff going on all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's stuff going on in Egypt. But yeah, it's just some stuff to follow because um, this is kind of news that we don't really hear. Is this often. the first time, like recently anyway, that stuff has like this has been happening in Sudan? Because I guess like with Libya or whatever, it's like okay, there's there's been the last since 2011 I think yeah like you yeah, know yeah, lots yeah. of political stuff going yeah, yeah. on and revolutions yeah, and yeah. crackdowns and same with Egypt and a lot of other places in North Africa and mm. the Middle East so is this the first time that Sudan is kind of joining 
with that? Yeah, or? Well, I think it's sort of like echo, like protests kind of echo like each other, don't they? Mm-hmm. Um, there was stuff going on in Morocco um, for the past few years. Then now there's stuff going on in Algeria and like now there's stuff going on in um, Sudan. But I think there was, there was just because we're, we're hearing about it now and it's doesn't, a big yeah. uprising doesn't mean there wasn't sort of stuff before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're just going to go through a few community announcements and then we'll um, be talking to Isja. We sail for human rights, indigenous sovereignty and climate justice. Our destination is Manus Island. Join us for the Freedom Flotilla. Sailforjustice.org. Get on board. A 3CR supporter. On March 16, the Sentani region of Jayapura in West Papua was hit by massive flooding and landslides, killing at least 89 people, with more than 6,000 people evacuated from their home. 74 people are missing and 159 have been injured. This disaster is the result of torrential rain coupled with devastations of the mountains, also poor waste management, polluting and clogging waterways, leading to flash flooding and mudslides. At this time, West Papuan people need your help more than ever. Help us. Reach our goal to raise $10,000 to provide emergency supplies, food, first aid, nappies, baby food and milk formula. All money raised will go directly to Yayasan Abdi Budaya Nusantara a foundation facilitating the evacuation camp in Sentani, West Papua. Donate online at https chafforg project flood relief for West Papua. West Papuan people need you. It's time to help and don't make them feel alone. So now we're going to have a chat with Cheryl, who's from the Indigenous Social Justice Association, about the rally on Sunday. Hi, Cheryl. How are you? Sorry, Cheryl. <laughs> Hi. We just kind of lost you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good start. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, we're very early yeah, in the morning. Yeah, let's just blame it on the fact that it's only going to be me, Mark. Up. <laughs> Um, how are you? Thank you for oh, okay. coming on thank air. Thank you, and thank you for your interest in, you know, contacting us. Too. No worries, of course. Can you tell us a little bit about what Istja what is and yeah, kind of the sure. work that you've been doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, we're a group that was established back in January 2005 mm-hmm. um, to organise a Melbourne rally and NAM rally these days, and March as part of a National Day of Action to mark the first anniversary of the death of 17-year-old Camilla Roy lad TJ Hickey in Redfern. Mm-hmm. Um, a call came from Isja Sydney, and um, the idea was to demand a fresh inquiry into the circumstances surrounding his death in custody. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether people realised TJ was impaled on a metal picket fence um, following a, or during a police pursuit when his bicycle was rammed and he was bounced off and um, 
then they pulled him off the fence and, you know, everything was, you know, pear-shaped, the whole, you know, the whole um, management of his um, experience. Yeah, isn't it? down before they called, you know, for backup or for ambulances and mm. just terrible stuff went on and um, there's still not been justice to this day. But um, since that time... Of course, um, we have meetings down here with some of the local Aboriginal people, people living down here, and they said, yeah, sure, have your rally, but don't go away. Mm-hmm. So and we found out why they said that, it's because, you know, it hasn't stopped. Yeah. Deaths in custody just have not stopped. There's apparently one every 28 days, and, you know, that's on average. And, you know, unfortunately, media very rarely speaks of it. We rely on, you know, stations like 3CR or other alternative media to, I guess, inform those of us that are interested. Yeah, so, so if you're saying there's yeah, one every 24, 28, 28 days? 28 like, days, that's on average, you know, look, you know, you sort of, yeah, just, you know, look, the most recent one that we're working on in Victoria. Victoria has been fairly clean, you know, we will say. Not that it's been, you know, people haven't been abused and mm-hmm. harassed, intimidated and all the other stuff that goes along with, you know, yeah. the policing of um, First Nations people. We know that's the case. Mm-hmm. Terrible things have been happening, even though there's been not many deaths in custody of recent. But Tanya Days, people might have heard of that one. Yeah. And that's really brought a, a spotlight to Victoria, how the system's not working and the recommendations from that Royal Commission almost three decades ago yeah. still haven't been implemented in full, all of those um, conditions. And one of them was to abolish the offence of public drunkenness mm-hmm. and implement health care alternatives to incarceration. And Tanya, 55-year-old Yorta Yorta woman, she'd be alive today, no doubt, yeah. had those recommendations been implemented in full and particularly the one of public drunkenness. So we've joined up with a family who are um, trying to have that offence abolished. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've you know. um, been hearing that there's a petition about that happening at the moment. Do you know where people can find out more information and yeah, get sure. involved there's, about a, that? there's actually two petitions. There's one online. Mm-hmm. So if they Google Tanya Day, um, Tanya Day petition, I think, would bring that up. And, and certainly it'll be up on the Isjim Melbourne um, Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a Remembering Tanya Day page yeah. on Facebook and the girls, the family have put it up on there. Um, there's a hard copy one though that I believe is at 3CR. I just heard the um, promo card a few moments ago on <laughs> 3CR. So yeah. I think there might be one at the front desk if people pop by 3CR. Mm-hmm. All, that, that will probably be at the um, Palm Sunday rally too. We'll probably have it there. So Yeah, thank um, you. So the Palm Sunday Rally is this Sunday. So That's right. Yep, beginning at 2 o'clock, I think. Yeah, can you just explain um, what your contingent is and what you're calling for and what you're doing on the day? Well, we're just highlighting that, that you know, that these deaths in custody, you know, that um, the, the brutal racist Australian state treats both First Nations people and refugees seeing persecution appallingly. Mm-hmm. Um, we're really highlighting that, and as many of this, you know, have known, you know, far too many people have come to premature death. It's just, it's, you know, it's beyond, yeah, it's beyond anyone's imagination what these people have been going through, you know, the offshore ones, and mm-hmm. then closer to home, the onshore ones, you know, mm-hmm. places like Palm Island where there was, um, 
Murundji Dumachi will be highlighting people's names, putting the names Reza Barati, Tanya Day, TJ Hickey, Hamid Karzai, Ms Ju, David Dungay, Omid Masamali, Faisal Ishak Ahmed, Murundji Dumachi, Veronica Baxter, Salim, Kai Awning, Wayne Fella Morrison and all who've died in police, prison and immigration detention. Mm-hmm. And we need them really to be responsible for the deaths in custody. And it's just not, you know, it's just not talking about people. It's these people have had fam, you know, got families. It's devastation and lives have changed forever. You know, it, it impacts all of us. I think, you know, if we can live with this, you know, but we can't. We just can't continue turning blind eyes to what's happening. You know, here. You know, I mean, we're highlighting, and it's good that we're highlighting what's happening to the refugees. Unfortunately, I think there's more awareness almost now mm. of people like Reza Barati. I certainly know more about him than I know of. You know, I'm always hearing of a new name of a death in custody onshore mm-hmm. that I didn't know about. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just, I just don't know how the system has been allowed to get away with it for so long. Mm. And I think it's pretty exciting because I think often we hear about these things like, you know, we talk about First Nations deaths in custody on mainland Australia and then also we talk about deaths in immigration detention centre on Manus Island or Nauru quite separately, but actually the policies and the things that enable them to happen are really similar. Of course they are. So, yeah, so thanks for, you know, talking about those two things together. You know, how it started, you know, look, the massacres, I mean, it started differently in this country with the massacres and that, and I think as people have become aware of that, you know, there were frontier wars and massacres, and it just changed, you know, and now we're doing it offshore and we're doing it onshore just in a slightly different way. We're not going out and, well, we are, we're going into countries like Iraq and Iran and, you know, look, we're sticking our noses in everywhere, creating trouble. Um, so is it anyone to have got refugees in the first instance? Mm-hmm. You know, of course people are going to flee when they're not safe. You know, we have a, a responsibility to care for people, yeah. not to turn them away. Have them, You know, it's all very well saying they've died at sea or, you know, how do we know who they are? Well... I think the borders should have been closed 230 years ago if we wanted to have a safe country. <laughs> it would have been a whole lot different, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So we're just hoping people will join us at the front of the State Library. We'll be getting there about quarter to two probably on um, Sunday. Cool. And we'll have our placards. People can carry one of our placards if they wish that, you know, draws the two together, the yeah. onshore and the offshore, and calling for an end to it all. Cool. Thank you very much for your time. Um, I hope that a lot of people come out and join you on Sunday. Thanks so much. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Guatemala. I'm Black Betty, and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore Black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2.
Action Alert. Maralinga Pieces, forever on country, will celebrate decades of nuclear resistance and raise vital funds for Friends of the Earth's National Nuclear Free Campaign. Friday the 12th of April at Arena Project Space, 2 Kerr Street, Fitzroy. Live and silent auctions, bar, live music, doors open at 5.30pm, the auction starts at 7. Featuring the works of over 60 artists, there's something for everyone. That's Friday, April 12 at Arena Project Space, 2 Kerr Street, Fitzroy, from 5.30pm. Friends of the Earth Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. My name is Ruby Susan Matt. My pronouns are they. Listening to 3CR Radical Radio, and that was Binde with Stella, Rosie, and Claudia on. Hello, I'm Liz Ride. Welcome to Are You Looking at Me and International Day for People with Disability. Today on the show, we meet Trish Maloney and Frank Corbenti, who are some of the elders. Did you miss our 12-hour special broadcast for International Day of People with a Disability? Radical Disabled programmers discuss the NDIS, Aboriginal rights, creativity, youth access, financial security, parenting, LGBTIQ, intersections and so much more. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash disability day 2018 and listen back anytime. Marxism 2019 is Australia's biggest socialist conference, taking place this Easter long weekend from April the 18th to the 21st in Melbourne. Marxism 2019 features international and local guest speakers, including award-winning author and activist Baruz Bouchani. Join over 1,000 activists for crucial discussions on how to resist the rise of the right and rebuild the left. With more than 100 sessions, tickets start at just $35 and are available at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. We have Megan Williams in the studio uh, from Friends of the Earth River Country Campaign. Uh, thanks for coming in. No worries. Thanks for having me. Ah, no worries. I suppose, do you want to start off with like uh, maybe introducing um, the kind of work that you do yeah. um, at FOE? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, I coordinate the River Country Campaign. Uh, and we've been campaigning for healthy rivers uh, over the last 12 months. Um, and really all we say is that healthy rivers need water, um, but unfortunately the inland rivers in Australia are suffering because they don't have that very simple need. It's not really a river if you don't have water in it, but unfortunately the Darling has been suffering that fate um, for some months now, and it's had some pretty devastating effects mm-hmm. on the environment and on the community. And, yeah, so we go out there and we try to bring attention to these issues and support the communities out on the ground who are really suffering. Um, You know, they don't have drinking water out there. 
Um, they can't do any of the things that they used to do, you know, like these communities love their river. That's their whole life and recreation. Um, the indigenous peoples, their culture and their history is embedded in the, in the river. Um, and so all of these communities, are suffering, um, just on so many levels. Um, yeah, and so we, we try to hold the politicians to account over their failings in these issues and, uh, work with people to get some good outcomes back into the rivers. So, um, the, the Murray is drying. There's fish that have been killed. Do you want to talk a bit about, like, what's happening? Yeah. 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 So it's on the Darling that's dry. The Murray's still flowing. Mm-hmm. Um, but so back in December, uh, there was a fish kill that killed about 10,000 fish, uh, just before Christmas. Um, that not not many people really heard about. Um, I mean, it was in the news, but it wasn't huge. Um, and then in early January, that's when it hit the big time. Um, there was over a million fish died, the meat-along cod. Um, there was a video of these two guys holding these big fish um, in the bright green river um, yeah. go viral on on Facebook and every platform um, and that r- was really when it got the attention um, yeah like literally millions of fish just floating upside down in the in the water mm. um, and since then there's been uh, a third fish kill which killed all of the small things so the, the second one like a lot of big fish died um, and then the third one it was all these little fish um, and are there any fish just left uh, yes, there are. <laughs> There's still plenty of carp. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> um, but yeah, so not sure how the fish really are doing in that stretch of the river, but. Probably pretty bad. And pretty bad, yeah. And the unfortunate thing is that, um, that area up around Menindi where the, where the fish died, uh, they've got this huge lake system called the Menindi Lakes. Mm. And that's the biggest fish breeding ground. Um, in the Murray-Darling, or probably in Australia. Mm. Um, uh, so all the fish kind of travel there and take refuge there because they know that it's a um, big, safe wetland where they breed and can flourish even in times of drought. Um, but they're totally dried up at the moment as well, mm. and that's really because of the failings in the in the basin plan um, and the failings of the um, different authorities managing the waterways. Um, and the community out there is absolutely um, distraught about the management of the Menindee Lakes. Uh, they just shouldn't be dry. They've been, they were full. So in the last five years, they've filled up twice and the government has drained them completely. Um, and each time they're full, that's something like um, eight years water supply or something like that. Uh, and then it, they've just been been emptied and nobody could really work out why where do they take where do they take the water so the water just goes down the darling and into the murray and down into south australia um and that's part of the basin plan yeah well that's just part of how we manage our rivers i guess um which is not managing them at all yeah but the second time they they drained it the murray was in flood so there is no south australia would have had no requirement for water because the Murray had so much water pouring down it mm-hmm. um, that to just empty the um, Indy Lakes into a flooded river 
it just boggles the mind. Um, so there's, there's a lot of questions that need to be answered around how the lakes and our rivers have been managed. Mm. Um, yeah. So, what does it, so if we just go back, do we know why the fish died? Like, and what what does it mean? Like, mm. so all these fish are dying. What what does that mean for the everything, the river, and like the future of the fish? Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, I guess there's a few parts to that to answer that question. Is um, on the mo- in the most immediate terms, the fish died because there was no oxygen in the water. Um, so there was a blue-green algae outbreak um, and that chewed up all the oxygen that was dissolved in the water and the fish essentially suffocated. Um, but, you know, that, that that's not what what the fish kill that we've seen aren't natural. Like, it's completely unprecedented to see those numbers of fish die. Um, so it's not simply that there was blue-green algae, it's really important to ask why was this blue-green algae outbreak so bad what's happening on the darling that created these conditions and um the answer to that is that we've just completely plundered them for profit um so there's not enough water flowing down the darling um there is a drought on at the moment um, and that's making it warmer there is less water in the river but in combination with that is um the fact that we extract far too much water out of the rivers for irrigation. Um, and so the the Darling's just not flowing because we've taken the water out. Um, and that's the reason the fish died, is that we the Murray-Darling Basin Plan allows for too much water to be taken out of the river. And there's people... Um, uh, like just, you know, probably only a handful of people, but there is people who are pumping illegally um, and taking water when they shouldn't be um, and taking more water than they're allowed to. And it's having a devastating impact on the environment. Um, and so yesterday there was a report, a fish kill report that was released by the coalition, and we we're talking a bit about before, just before we we came on air. Do you want to talk a bit about these reports and what the government's doing? Mm. Yeah, so there's a few few reports floating around. The one that came out yesterday was done by somebody at Melbourne Uni, uh, and it was commissioned by the coalition. Um, and the coalition were really brought to the table on this because Labor commissioned their own report through the Academy of Sciences. Um, and so it is in part a political document to, for the coalition to match what Labor was doing, uh, in my opinion. Um, and so what they've announced from that report is they've accepted 10 of the recommendations um, and then there's a handful more that they haven't. Uh, there might be 20 or 30 recommendations that they, they're not even taking everything on board of their own report. Um but so what they've promised is they're going to put $70 million into research and connectivity and compliance, um, and that's specifically around the fish kills. So what does that mean? They're going to look at kind of why the fish died, which we already know. We've taken too much water out of the rivers. It's not rocket science. The rivers need to flow, and fish need to be in water. Like, <laughs> you like can I have $70 million, please? <laughs> And um, 
then in connectivity and compliance. So that just means to help the rivers connect up together. Same thing, we just need water in them. Um, and compliance in terms of making those illegal operators, um, you know, reining them in and bringing them to justice over essentially killing our rivers. Um so what what that would look like under the coalition, I'm not sure because they're the ones who have allowed it to get to this point. Mm. Um, and the other thing to bear in mind is that like this $70 million is to prevent future fish kills. But the Murray-Darling Basin plan was to restore the health of the rivers. And that is a $13 billion plan that we've already spent $8 billion on. So $70 million to stop future fish kills like I would be asking, why didn't that eight billion dollars stop the the fish kills we've already seen? And um, you know, if thirteen billion dollars in the basin plan isn't enough, then maybe we should just be looking at the basin plan and fixing the structural issues that have allowed this to happen in the first place. People talk about the Murray Dason, Murray Darling Basin Plan all the time, and I'm like, what actually is that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's a good question because people <laughs> like they just talk about it as if you should know, and it's like, who, in what agreement is this, and how, what does it mean, and yeah, all the questions. Yeah, it's um, so it's the biggest environmental policy in Australia's history. Okay. Um, and it was a policy brought in in 2012. It was kind of introduced um while Howard was still in power, um, but it wasn't agreed to until 2012. So. Um, and the point of it was to return the rivers back to health. It was an acknowledgement during the millennial drought, millennium drought. Yeah, the millennium drought, <laughs> not the millennial drought. That's that's, that's an, I an wish housing. I had one of those. Yeah. <laughs> that's talking about the housing crisis. Yeah. <laughs> um, Slash avocado. <laughs> during the millennium drought, it was an acknowledgement that our rivers weren't going to. Um, uh, sustain us if we didn't manage them better, that um, there was huge issues with salinity and um, irrigation water wasn't good enough to use um, and it was a bipartisan policy to return water that was um, already allocated um, to farmers um, and put it back into a pool of water for the environment. So um, our rivers are over-allocated. That's why people can and are allowed to take more water than is safe to take out of the river. Mm-hmm. And so the basin plan was to um, try and get some of that water back. It was through buybacks um, and through infrastructure um, in- infrastructure improvements and things um, that they have kind of allotted water back to the environment. Um and when it was agreed to, like, we said that that's not enough water for the environment, um, that they actually probably need double the amount of water that's in the basin plan to bring the rivers back to health. But at least it was a first step in um, putting some water back and um, trying to improve the health of the rivers. And so for this to happen, you know, six years down the track into the biggest environmental policy mm. is... It's really outrageous, um, you know, that the the plan is failing if we're having unprecedented fish kills 
the plan is undoubtedly failing and we need to look at um, how it's working to improve it and to actually deliver on its goals, which is to bring the rivers back to life. Mm. Um, and yeah, traditional owners have been taking care of this land for thousands and thousands of years um, and have had complex management, um, like environmental management systems and that sort of stuff. What, what, are, what are people saying, um, like what are local communities saying about that? And is there like, is there anything going on where we can sort of like use that like really in-depth knowledge? Mm-hmm. Well, um, traditional owners, <coughs> excuse me, um, traditional owners uh, have not been engaged um, by the government to any meaningful degree, really. Um, and that is one of the first failings. Um, their knowledge and understanding of how waterways work is just so much deeper than what the basin plan could ever pretend to be. Mm. <laughs> um, and so, like, first of all, the basin plan doesn't um, have any or originally didn't have any um, cultural water. Um, in it. So cultural water is water that um, traditional owners can use for um, practicing culture. And um, there was some agreements last year where they're going to start to improve or like start to find ways to put cultural water back into the system, uh, which is good. And it's good that um, it's something that people talk about and people who know river issues like no cultural water now, whereas back when the basin plan was written, the concept didn't exist in the, you know, just in white Australia. Um, and, um, yeah, so, um, yeah, like, like that, that's the first thing. Um, but on top of that, like, um, you know, across the basin, they're crying out that their culture is under attack because um, the people, Aboriginal people or Indigenous cultures along the river, of which there are many, I think there might be 40 Indigenous nations in the basin, um, you know, water is central to their way of life and to their history um, and it's their needs have been essentially ignored um, and their knowledge as well. Um, also... This is maybe another slightly silly question, but why, like, what are they using the water for? I realise they're using it for farming, but, like, why is that allowed? Like, surely if you need to be taking massive amounts of water out of a river to grow anything, then maybe you shouldn't be growing things in that place or looking at your farming practices. (laughs) I don't know. I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. it's It's a good question. Um, so they grow like up in the northern basin. So this is talking northern New South Wales, southern Queensland, and this is where um, the farms are that are taking the water out from like upstream of the Darling. Um, there's a lot of cotton, and um, yeah, cotton is a really, really thirsty crop. And um, there's, you know, a handful of really big properties that have water allocations that just 
unbelievable water allocations, like the size of Sydney Harbour. And um, there, yeah, so. And if it's in northern New South Wales, southern Queensland, is that like semi-desert? Like, is it yeah, really Yeah, semi-arid high? land. Yeah. Um, so, and out along the lower Darling is also semi-arid, but um, it's sort of becoming arid land. Yeah. Um, and that's, like, with the drought and with climate change, that's going to get worse. Um, and the thing about um, drying up the Menindee Lakes and drying up all of the wetlands and letting the river run really low is that... Um, like one of the government's rationales for that is that um, it's going to save on evaporation, so where the water just <laughs> transpires into the air. But that's actually where rain comes from. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> and there, there's good evidence for how lakes and wetlands um, create their own microclimate. Mm. And so that's all changing. You know? Also like trees as well. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um, but to, um, the other things that they grow in the in the basin, like there's rice and there's almonds, um, and they're all really thirsty crops. Um, but they also grow like it's known as Australia's food bowl. So mm-hmm. at different places, like that, that I haven't seen many vegetables grown up on the Lower Darling, but um, you know along the Murray and in Victoria, and there's dairy industries that are struggling and yeah. Um, yeah, there's lots of things out there. Um, and we're going to have to wrap it up, but like, well, if people want to get involved and want to find out more about the kind of work you do and want to get involved in doing stuff around the Darling, um, how can they? Yeah, um, so probably jump on to our Facebook page to see what we've been up to. Uh, that's River Country Campaign, so Facebook slash River Country Campaign. We'll get you there. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter. Uh, where our handle is at foe, F-O-E, River Country. Um, and we have meetings at Friends of the Earth. Uh, we don't have any until after Easter, but, um, yeah, contact me. You can put my email in the show notes. Um, it's just megan.williams at foe.org.au. Um, and I can keep you up to date for when our next meeting is. Um, and, yeah, we're open to new members all the time. Fabulous. Um, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for having me. <laughs> no, no worries. And just before um, going to the next community announcement, I um, just wanted to like let people know um, there's on Friday, which is tomorrow, um, between 7.30 in the morning and 9 a.m., there's a Frack Off Friday Melbourne for Water is Life campaign from cool. Seed, Seed Bomb. Um, and, yeah, I think that's just outside um, Origin Energy, um, which, you know, want to start fracking the NT. Um, and that's um, between 7.30 a.m. and 9 a.m. Um, and you can just, um, like it's on Facebook, just go Frack Off Friday Melbourne for Water is Life. <coughs> We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts and so do we. They're 100% cotton and Australian made and you can get one for just $30. They come in black, dark grey and a cool light grey. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 9419 8377. 
or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. Are you passionate about films, interested in cultural diversity or wanting to get exposure for your own film? The Indonesian Film Festival is just around the corner with our main events running from March the 23rd to April the 10th. There will be free film screenings, panel discussions and for filmmakers there's the short film competition. This year's theme is The Unknown and film submissions close on the 3rd of March. What are you waiting for? Go and check it out. The Indonesian Film Festival, IFFAustralia.com, a 3CR supporter. for human rights, indigenous sovereignty and climate justice. Our destination is Manus Island. Join us for the Freedom Flotilla. Sailforjustice.org. Get on board. A 3CR supporter. Guatemala. I'm Black Betty, and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2. CR broadcasters present over 100 radio programs every week including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to more Trisia Community Radio. Please subscribe now. Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. Help 3CR support the rights of Indigenous Australians. They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our songline, and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care, and also others. The recognition were... of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years, and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help. 
help keep Indigenous voices on air, call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. So um, next up, we've got Shakira Hussein, who's an academic and researcher um, on the line, um, to, who's been following the movements of the far right for quite some time. Uh, good morning, Shakira. Um, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Um, so I suppose uh, we could start so talking about uh, the far right, white nationalism. Um, there's a conference in Finland um, of white nationalists from around the globe. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, there's, um, just last week there was a conference in which um, I haven't seen much reports of what actually happened. I just saw there was an article in Vice and elsewhere about how they were meeting in Finland and coming from, from the US, from, uh, from all around Europe, as you'd expect, from Canada, and, um, it, and all these organizations are called the, the, it's the second of these conferences, the Awakening Conference. Mm. And like, and what I find interesting about that, particularly in the light of the Christchurch massacre as well, is that it highlights the global nationalism of, of white, of white nationalists, of ultra nationalists. Um, and the, um, a lot of the reporting on the Christchurch massacre has picked up on the fact, the references to other international, um, events in the, in the killer's so-called manifesto. He references his travels to Europe. Mind you, also, he left fluttering remarks about the friendly Pakistani people in his um, Facebook review of the Pakistani hotel that he had stayed in not long before, but anyhow. Um, but, yeah, um, and it says that it was his time in France and also the, the uh, death of a young girl in a terrorist attack in Sweden that uh, supposedly led to his political awakening. I find that unconvincing, actually, because the nature of his itinerary in Europe suggests that he went there in order to connect with other far-right extremists rather than just suddenly became a far-right extremist when he got there. But, of course, that's still under investigation, the nature of his links with these European far-right organisations is being investigated by the local authorities as you may know from media reports, he um, donated money to the so-called identitarian movement in Europe. But yeah, again, but then with this meeting of far-right nas- of, of um, far-right white nationalists in Finland, and highlights the way that they are interconnected. And this had struck me going to various far-right events in Australia. Um, well, I remember noticing this in 2013 when I covered for Crikey um, the lecture that Ahead Builders gave for the uh, Q Society, which is a local, and Q is named after, like, it's, although they spell it with a, a letter Q, but it's named after sub, the suburb of Q in Melbourne, um, which is where they were meeting. It's a um, local far right, you know, built around anti-Islam, which is a common thread 
in all of these contemporary movements, although they build on earlier um, anti-Semitic um, organisations and figures as well. Um, yeah, and hearing and Wilders open by saying, I come to you, a visitor, you know, Australia used to be called New Holland, I am a visitor from the old Holland to the new Holland, and I bring a warning. And Europe is referenced by, um, by, by, as, and or Eurabia, as the late Italian journalist Ariana Falacci, who you know, had been a hero of mine, you know, before she became a fascist. She <laughs> used to be quite left-wing, Italian journalist, but then um, decided to spend her, you know, declining years hating on Muslims. Um, yeah, so Eurabia is this warning if, if Australia and Canada and the United States don't well, halt Muslim immigration for a start and discipline the Muslim communities that are already there, then you'll end up like Eurabia, which with a, you know, well, for a start, they massively exaggerate the size of Muslim populations in various European countries and then say that there are just these all these no-go Muslim areas in European cities where uh, non-Muslim white folk are too terrified to go. So I'm guessing they reference France a lot. Sorry? I'm guessing they reference France a lot. It has the highest... Um, oh, Muslim yes, population. yes, yes. Yeah, and, y- yes... France and and um, the Netherlands also. There's supposedly all these areas of, of um, Amsterdam and Leiden where, where um, that yes, definitely France and the um, Christchurch killer uh, talks about how absolutely horrified he was to see how many of the invaders there were in France, even though he had heard about this before his arrival, but to actually see it and to discover that the locals had been entirely obliterated in some areas. You know, it was just um, that, yeah, that was his moment of political, um, well, he regarded sort of describes it as an awakening, that, um, yeah, we we describe it as as an indoctrination. Mm. Sorry for laughing. I think sometimes it just seems really ludicrous, but obviously has really scary... And real word, you know, like flow and effects okay. that happen from that as well, like that kind of discourse. Yeah, quite. And um, well, and it's difficult because, like, on the one hand, you know, I am describing them as extremists, and most people would describe them as extremists. But another, as of attending various far far right events, will reclaim Australia rallies and key society events, and you. Was, I was just struck by how small the gap was between that mm-hmm. and what you actually read in mainstream media. Mm-hmm. And yeah. here said by, you know, members, you know, and well, cabinet ministers, not just members of parliament, like members of the, of, of the Liberal National Party on an everyday basis. Mm-hmm. You actually, if it wasn't for the little theatrics of it, like the, like, like, well, like the dressed up in the, Crusader outfits is a favourite one, mm-hmm. with the Knights Templar cross painted on their, you know, on their robes, whatever you call them. You really could have been at a at a everyday um, meeting of the 
well, I have never been to a medieval Liberal Party, so I'm not sure what it's like, but to go by what some of their parliamentarians say, kind of, if one imagines that, um, that it would have been the, the nice Templar outfits would have been the main distinguishing feature for the Reclaimed Australia Valley to a medieval Liberal Party, both mm. medieval Liberal Party. Well, and that's sort of the thing. So, like, since Christchurch, we've seen a lot of media reporting um, talking about, oh, um, the rise of the far right and blah, blah, blah. Um, but, you know, it's kind of the, the far right or white nationalism is kind of embedded in the very structures of, like, the, like, well, of Australia as a state, I guess, but also, um, like, around the world. Can you talk a bit about that? Like, like you know, communities of, especially communities of colour living in the West, but also um, black and brown countries know that this this exists. Yeah, it's, yes. It's, um, I, I'm using words like extremism, you know, out of, in order to, so that people will know that, the exact groups that I'm discussing and researching, but it's a bit of a misnomer because, yeah, because it's part of the mainstream. Well, because that ideology is part of the mainstream. Like, of course, what distinguishes some of them is that they're prepared to use. Well, okay, even the use of violence because, like, it's part of policing. It's part of you know, it's part of the rationale for um, military. Adventures overseas, but you know, non-state violence—the kind of you know, um, and un- unauthorized violence—you know—is um, what distinguishes, you know, um, and some, you know, well, the, the Christchurch terrorists for a start from you know, well, the average Liberal Party parliamentarian. But um, yeah, but um, so uh, um, yeah, there's there is that, but yeah, it's it's not something that's alien to our to our meaning you know, ordinary Aussies um, history or way of thinking. It's um, it's become much more aggressive and ugly. It's hard to see that Pauline Hanson, who you remember, started you know the um, One Nation Party after being booted out of the National Party. When you read the comments that she made back in 1996, it's hard to see that a, a, a Liberal Party candidate who was on target to win in what had always historically been an ALP electorate would get kicked out for that now. So there has been a shift to the right. I, I won't, like, well, a shift to the right in Australia overall and a shift to the right in the mainstream political parties. I won't say that we've always been where we are now mm. at the same time the seeds of it have always been there and it's and and it's always been you know um you know not very far below the surface it's just at the moment become much more aggressive and 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 um i was about to say hyper masculine but that's not new either <laughs> you know and plus there's a good many um you know, it, it's because they're also very explicitly patriarchal. It's tempting to think that it's only males who support these organisations. But they're, although they're they're explicitly masculinist movements and an explicitly masculinist organisation, uh, sorry, ideology. That's not to say that there aren't plenty of female supporters. And well, Marianne Le Pen 
um, you know, and Pauline Hanson are obvious examples there, you know, not just members but leaders. Mm. Um. And Pauline Hanson, of course, getting a great deal of her support from aggressive single fathers who have grudges with the family court, you know, reportedly. Mm. Um, can we talk a bit about... Pauline so, Hanson, a single mother herself, of course. Anyway, mm. <laughs> but yes. Can we talk a bit about the the movements um, in Australia? Do you know what's going on um, with these sort of, like, groups in Australia? Like, you know, you've mentioned Reclaim Australia um, and that sort of thing, but they sort of, like, kind of disappeared for, for a while. Um, do, do, do we know what's... And have resurfaced under different names, like, um, you know, it's a good tactic to, like, sort of disappear once you get a bad cop and then sort of resurface under different names. But um, do, do we know what's happening in Australia with these groups? Yeah, well, Reclaim was always more of a movement than a, one particular organisation. They held that series of rallies people claiming that it was the first time they'd ever been to a rally. And in some cases, I think it was true because they did really seem to quite know what you were supposed to do at a rally. Some of them, they were kind of, what do we do now? We, do we shout? Okay, I, I can shout. I've got vocal cords, you know. But others who um, were definitely old hands. And so there were, and there were different organisations that attended the reclaim rallies, including, of course, some Liberal Party and National Party um, members of Parliament addressed the reclaim rallies and Pauline Hanson too. So, yeah, so there's, um, so they were, like, as I said, more of a, and organised online largely, or at least they, you know, publicised online. Um, but, yeah, and, but then there were all these other organisations as well. The United Patriots Front, which is now, oh God, what's it now? True Blue? And, um, yeah, and, yeah, and then, um, God, I've got a glitch of what, as to, uh, memory of what everything's called. Oh, soldiers yes, of Odin. Um, I remember we went to a yes, soldiers of Odin yes, thing we, with Avian, who at one stage were were advertising themselves as the offshoot of a um, a, a, a Finnish organisation, but uh, then I noticed from their Facebook page they say. Uh, we're just now the uh, local soldiers of Odin because the uh, international soldiers of Odin want to pay really heavy membership fees and can't afford those. Um, yeah, then there's the explicitly neo-Nazi. Um, good, um, oh God, um, um, antipathy and resistance, which has been putting up posters with swastikas on, you know, around around Carlton and handing out very explicitly neo-Nazi. You know, well, targeting university campuses, handing out very explicitly anti-Semitic neo-Nazi leaflets at the University of Melbourne, among other, other locations, um, sort of, and and putting up, you know, um, um, I think there was um, media coverage of these um, very far-right chalk drawings which they drew, you know, early in the morning at the University of Melbourne, which the student union had to hastily have removed. So yeah, they're um, they're certainly becoming a lot more visible. One assumes becoming larger, um, and finally, you know, of course, after Christchurch coming under more official scrutiny. And could I just say that the line from some quarters about how oh we've had our eyes on these for some time and the authorities have too and all the rest of it. 
of course, I can't know what ASIO is up to any more than I know what happens at your average um, Liberal Party branch meeting. But um, given that, like a couple of years ago, I, or maybe 18 months ago, I was invited to a, you know, a closed roundtable um, discussion, like in a briefing on women and extremism, hosted by um, Prime Minister and Cabinet, at which, like, which was meant to be, well, which was for academics working on the topic of women and extremism to present our findings to, um, to, to the security establishment, shall we say. And let me guess, it was all Islamic uh, terrorism yeah, or something. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And it was Chatham House rules, so I can't go into details of what happened. But I mm. will say that I said I would attend if I could talk about women and far-right extremism, and I got 10 minutes for that. And the rest of the day was the Muslim problem. Mm. You know, so, yeah. And, 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 and but do you think, and, Shakira, do you think that... The extremism oh. would not have been raised if I had not said that I wanted to speak about it. Mm. And as I said, I was allocated 10 minutes out of it, the, an entire day. Mm. Um, and do you think um, that now this has become a bit more fashionable? for lack of a better word, I can't think of another one, um, that, that now, oh, hey, maybe, like, you know, researchers will start putting in grants um, or the government will start giving grants um, to, um, you know, quote-unquote, research um, right-wing extremism. Yeah, and, okay. And what is it's, that? It's, yeah. it's, you know, I can see you know, it's um, that this particular horrific event has brought it into focus, but yeah, but but I'm um, unconvinced by. Well, I'm certainly unconvinced by the line that it was having an appropriate degree of attention prior to this. Um, I, you might have noticed um, just in the last 24 hours, media reports by someone who said he'd um, unnamed person who said that he'd received, you know what sound like quite explicit um, death threats from the guy who became the Christchurch killer after this far-right event, which actually I covered this one for Crikey too, out in Elkham, the, the suburb of Melbourne. Um, or is it the suburb of Melbourne now? Area close to Melbourne. Um, a few years ago. And, um, and he took that to the police and it was, and he was just told, "Oh, just block him. Don't take any notice." And there was no further investigation. You know, and you know, I was contacted by the arson squad after one of the far-right events I covered, at which uh, um, a speaker had said, "I'd like to tell you all to go and burn down mosques, but I, uh, but I can't do that because I'd get arrested." Okay, so the arson squad took an interest in the burning down mosques, but you know, and for all that I know. Maybe that, um, again, I don't know what the security services were making of this, but only the arson squad, you know, and, the, and he was not charged. He, he was, it, it, he was like investigated and his name arose in the course of trials of, of other, um, that the only other case to have gone to court, um, which was, oh God, what's his name? Philip, um, starts with D. Anyhow. Who uh, so and um, yeah because he consorted and provided anyhow with them but he was not 
charged for that. You know, like that 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 that's incitement. You know, really saying I'd love to tell you to go and burn down mosques, but that's against the law, so I'm not going to do that. Come on, how's that not a threat? How's that not incitement to violence? You know, and I was asked, did anybody else hear? And I go, well, most of Vicpol, you know, was there at the time. You know, there were a stack of other witnesses, police witnesses, hundreds of them. Um, Sorry, now I'm ranting. No, no, it's Your rants are the best thing yeah. ever. You know, well, you go to enough far-right ring ra- wing, far-right rallies. I do it so you don't have to. Actually, I, <laughs> I took you to one. I do it so most of your you listeners... You did take me to one. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry, Sherazad. No, I, I, I like to... I, I like it to so that break up that side. On the whole, I do it so that other people don't have to. Mm-hmm. And also, I feel like like my brown skin kind of makes it pretty explicitly clear that I'm not one of them, which um, and that I'm not um, I, that I don't need to. Um, I don't pass. If I look as though I might be one of them, I'm not quite sure how I would handle it. I'd want to be doing it differently so that I wasn't, well, inflating their appearance of their membership for the TV news kind of thing. Um, Whereas I think because I'm I'm a visible, although they do and they always brag about how they have, you know, um, well, the one they, they completely super brag about is um, is their part Aboriginal membership, even though they're also, you know, explicitly um, anti-Aboriginal racism as well. But, you know, I think that's sort of... It, it, I didn't click this at the time, but I now feel like that their use of the Aboriginal flag or their prominent display of the Aboriginal flag at Reclaim Australia rallies is another kind of trolling in a way. On the one hand, it's an alibi against racism, and also it's meant for, like, wrong foot and perplex and um, and distract their anti-racist opponents, because, you know, when the anti-racist demonstrators would be chanting, always was, always will be Aboriginal land, some of the um, reclaimed supporters would, would mockingly kind of join in and kind of clap their hands and say, we agree with that. You know, we've got part Aboriginal supporters here. You know, we we've got no problem with that. How stupid are you? Yeah. You know, so it's mm-hmm. sort of mocking, trolling. You know, um, you can't tell where we're coming from, and you know, and and we've got your bluff kind of thing. Um. um Shakira, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to jump in and take it in a different direction, just for a little bit. Um, yeah, it's been interesting recently, I guess, since Christchurch, this inc- now seemingly inclusion of white people into the ter- terrorism kind of definition. Um, I guess, what do you think about that and what are the implications of that, do you think? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, again, long overdue. Mm-hmm. I noticed The Guardian had a report uh, just yesterday about how um, it was on an academic study that had found that uh, attacks by white extremists 
media is very reluctant to describe them as terrorism. Yeah. Christchurch was an exception to that, and the researchers involved in that study say, suggest that that's because Jacinda Ardern named it as terrorism pretty well immediately from the outset. But um, whereas that hasn't, you know, that hasn't been the case in 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 the case of other violent attacks. But there's been this slow accumulation of casualties by far-right white extremists. Well, like the attack on the Pittsburgh synagogue last year stands out, that killed 11 people. Mm. Um, of course, there, there was a Toya which killed mostly, like the people of colour who died in the um, in the attack by in um, Atoya and in Copenhagen were on the whole um, just were unfortunate enough to be there at the time. He was targeting, as you'd know, sort of the left-wing youth camp, but was motivated by anti-Muslim hatred, you know, and was attacking them because they had been too Muslim-friendly. So, yeah, so, yeah, so, so Pittsburgh and Atoya were the ones with the highest death tolls, but there's been, like, you know, the stabbing of an elderly Muslim man here, a vehicle attack, you know, on a mosque in London there, you know, and a, um, you know, a woman in a headscarf murdered over in the US there, you know, and just it's been steadily mounting, like, drip by drip for years and years and years and not regarded as terrorism. And the murder of Joe Cox, of course, during mm-hmm. the Brexit, you know, and um, and yeah, and um, yeah, and, and you know, but dismissed as dismissed as mental illness or just you know, well, not called lone wolves because like Muslims are lone wolves, but like, but you know, lone perpetrators, you know, um, are not brought under that same umbrella. I notice also that the um, conservative philosopher Roger Scruton. Um, has been um, removed from a government post on the housing in the UK over the weekend for claiming that actually the murder of Joe Cox wasn't terrorism because, and he claims that um, that the murderer's um, mental illness was not taken sufficiently into account, and if it was, we'd all be able to see it wasn't terrorism. But you know, um, Roger Scruton again has been. Um, anti-multiculturalism, anti-immigration um, for, you know, decades and decades. Uh, that, that's still fit for respectable society. Yeah. Shakira, thank you so much for coming on and talking um, about all this. Um, there's still so much more to talk about and dissect. Um, maybe we can have you on in the next couple of weeks as well. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All the best. We Need to Pay the Rent is a fundraiser for Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance featuring The Pretty Littles, Worst Nurse, Ute Root, No Sister, Face Face and a heap more. Come join us on Kulin Nation land to give back. It's well overdue. We Need to Pay the Rent. Saturday, May the 18th at the Tote from 4pm. Tickets $20. Available from the Tote website, thetotehotel.com. Free or discounted tickets for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Contact organisers online to arrange. A 3CR supporter. Little 
My name is Ian Ham, and I'm the chair of the Healing Foundation's Stolen Generations Reference Group. At three weeks of age, I was separated from my birth family. And even though they lived just 50 kilometres away, I never knew they existed. I never met my mum, and it pains me to this day. There are thousands of Aboriginal people just like me, and our stories have never been heard. These stories form the basis of Australia's first Stolen Generations resource kit for schools. To download the kit, go to healingfoundation.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Uh, next up, we have uh, Camille Nurka, who is an independent gender, gender studies scholar and academic copy editor. Uh, good morning, Camille. Hello. How are you this morning? Not too bad. Thanks for coming on to the show. Um, so, so you've just released, or you've had a book just released that traces the origins of contemporary ideas of genital normality. Um, it's called Female Genital Cosmetic Surgery. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, it's all about labiaplasty, basically, um, and it's, it historicises it. So labiaplasty, for those um, who are unaware of the term, is a procedure where the labia minora are cut um, because they are deemed to be too large. Um, so they get cut off. And the idea is, like, it's, it's a plastic surgery thing, mostly, um, in contemporary, in the contemporary, um, world. And, um, the idea is that the, um, outer labia should, that the inner labia should not be seen beyond the outer labia. And so, like, where does this sort of, like, uh, idea come from? So, um, like, yeah. Yeah. So that's a question I ask in my book because mm-hmm. I think a lot of the contemporary work, um, while good, um, that's being done on um, labiaplasty doesn't actually look at the history of where this diagnosis of labial hypertrophy comes from. So you might get women going to their doctors, their GPs, and saying, look, I'm really worried about this. And then the GP might refer them to a gynecologist or they might refer them to a plastic surgeon. And the plastic surgeon will say to them, oh, yes, look, this looks like labial hypertrophy to me. We definitely need to do something about this. So I was thinking, well, where does this term come from? And it actually has quite a long history. But what I want to focus on today in discussion with you is the racialized history that people don't aren't necessarily talking about. And it goes back, it basically goes back to Dutch colonization of, of um, the southern, southern Africa and the Cape of Good Hope and the Hottentot apron. So the Hottentot apron was um, a, basically an idea, a construct, a cultural construct. Um, by, so like white um, anthropologists and so on went to the southern tip of Africa, um, met women there, met black women there and started writing about their genitals. So somewhere or other, somewhere along the line, some travellers, anthropologists, medical men and so on had seen the genitals of these particular women. And then they started sharing stories about them. And this is where I think labial hypertrophy really gained currency in the West um, among white Western um, scientists because they were talking about 
this is what they ended up calling the hot and tot aprons. So they noticed these women's genitals and they said, oh, goodness me, they look, they look big. Um, they look different to white women's. Um, and then it started becoming a kind of discussion about, um, because of this difference, whether these women were in fact human at all or whether they were more animal. That really doesn't surprise me at all. You know, in these sort of constructions of sort of race and empire and sort of like, you know, maintaining... Um, like certain, uh, you know, to to maintain like white superiority, you need an other, you know, and um, I suppose like you know, how does like the the um, I guess woman's body um, in particular um, mm. play within these like sort of constructions of of empire and constructions of of of, of whiteness to the detriment of others. Yeah, well, the labia, you know, it's such a it's such a small part of the body, really. But actually, um, there's a larger story about race that that unfold the labia, I guess. And the female body is a really important part of that story of the way um, white scientists in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries um, constructed racial difference. So the way that they talked about um, so um, you have Camille, I am so sorry to, to oh, cut you off. We We're actually like yeah, um out of time. But can we we are definitely gonna get you back on um to yeah. talk more about this and then about, you know, different bodies and, and gender identities and stuff like that. Um, yeah, that would be yeah. great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much Thank for coming you. on. Okay, so that was Camille Nurka, who is an independent gender studies scholar and academic copy editor. Um, and she was talking a bit about her book, Female Genital Cosmetic Surgery, um, and the his, uh, which delves into like the long tradition of pathologizing uh, female anatomy and how medicine shapes our commonly held ideals. Um, and we'll get her back on in two weeks. Um, so this is a bit of a wrap up of our show. Mm-hmm. Um, so f- first up, we listened to, we spoke with the Indigenous Social Justice Association. Yeah, we talked about the Palm Sunday rally, which is on this Sunday, and everyone yeah. should go. Um, and then we had Megan from Friends of the Earth, and then Shakira, who talked about um, the far right. Um, that's all we have um, time for, uh, but tune in for tomorrow uh, for uh, Friday breakfast, and we'll be back on next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.